Well, good morning. A couple of weeks removed from, from church due to COVID and kind of a trying time that we have going on. And, of course, when you miss that first Sunday of Advent, you know, the, you know and, and Kelvin did such a great job in bringing those two together. And, and uh, when I was asked to uh, preach uh, for Nigel is... Uh, Someplace miserable, I don't know where it's at. Someplace south of here, I think. Um, down by Dickinson? Or no, wait, Acapulco. He's Acapulco. Um, Mike showed us a picture of them, and uh, they're just miserable down there. And, um, but anyway, he asked uh, if I would preach a couple of weeks in a row. And um, so my thoughts and my prayers turned to, okay, Lord, what, do you, what would you like for me to preach on, Lord? And of course, because today's theme of Advent is love, there's nothing better to preach about than love. So please take your Bibles to John chapter 3, 16. You guys probably have never heard of this verse, so this morning we're going to explore it. Um, no, it's probably one of the most recognizable verse in the world. And uh, In fact, I think if you was to talk to people that are not believers, never even darken the door of a church, and you say, what is the most recognizable verse in the Bible? They'll probably tell you it's John 3.16 because they see it at the end zones of football games and signs in the basketball courts and, and wherever else. And uh, so it's a very recognizable verse. But this morning, I want to explore this verse in the spirit of Advent and unlock all that is in it um, for us to enjoy this morning. So John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Now, your version might say, begotten, and we'll get into that. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You so very much for Your Word. Thank You so very much, Lord, that as we celebrate the Advent season, the coming of Christ, we thank You, Father, for Your sacrifice. We thank You for Your love. We thank You, Father, for Your compassion for us and those who are lost. And so, Father, as we explore your word this morning in relationship to your love, in the context of your love, Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would move in this place this morning. I pray that your Holy Spirit would work in our minds and in our hearts to fully grasp and to fully understand your love. And so, Father, I just ask your blessing to be upon your word and upon the sharing of your message in Jesus' name. As I said, this week was the week of Advent, second week of Advent, which is the, in the, in the, in the subject or the topic of this Advent, or this week's um, celebration is of love. And it was said by a great many preachers, past and present, that preaching on love cannot be fully grasped. It's such a deep well of understanding that we'll never fully explore it. it, it one, of the, one of the theologians said it's like taking the oceans and putting them in the palm of your hands and not allowing a drop to spill out. That's how difficult it is to truly preach the, to the fullest extent of God's love. And I think there's a reason for that. And in fact, in my 25 years of walking with the Lord, or over 25 years of walking with the Lord, I'm still pressing in as to the depth 
of God's love. There are many times in my life where God's love is shed upon me, and I'm like, why, Lord, when I keep screwing up, or I think this way, or I do this thing? We're going to understand why that is. But I think one of the things is you just can't take God's love and just define it, right? That's, that's what God's love is. You can't put it in a box of understanding and say, okay, now we get it. I think it has to be experienced along with that for us to fully grasp its fullness. I think that's why preaching and teaching on God's Word always leaves us wanting more because we always want more of God's love. We always, and really what it is, is we really want to understand more of God's love because God has given us all of his love. Now, at the first glance this morning, John 3.16 would appear to be more of a verse that would be used for evangelism versus Advent. And yet, it couldn't be further from the truth because this verse encapsulates the spirit of Advent. And the reason for this is because the scripture not only highlights God's love, which we celebrate today, which Calvin spoke about this morning, but the message is also of a Savior and a Redeemer which is the spirit of Advent. For Advent itself means Christ coming. Now, before we unwrap this verse, I think context is important for John chapter 3, verse 16. And early in John chapter 3, we see that Nicodemus approaches Jesus at night. Now, Nicodemus is a teacher of Israel. He is a Pharisee. He is a religious elitist. He's one of the rulers of the religious sect of the Pharisees. And he has no doubt heard about Jesus. In fact, he probably, by how we dissect chapter 3, he's probably seen Jesus in action, Jesus teaching, Jesus healing, and the words that Jesus spoke. And it intrigued Nicodemus to such a degree that Nicodemus decided, you know what, I'm going to go meet with this Jesus, but I'm going to do it at night. And many theologians believe that's significant to understand because Nicodemus wanted a one-on-one audience with Jesus and he didn't want to be seen by others. And what that tells me is Nicodemus is a seeker. Nicodemus doesn't want to trip up Jesus and catch him in his words. Otherwise, he would have brought other Pharisees with him. No, Nicodemus is coming to Jesus one-on-one because he wants to know more. He wants to understand. And And Nicodemus opens up with his statement, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do the things that you do unless God is with him. That was Darla. I am sorry. She doesn't have a watch. You can get her one for Christmas. I always shut my phone off, and I didn't. Why did I not do that? Uh, I was going to say, oh, God's calling, changing the message. Um, What's that? Well, uh, yeah. (laughs) Hey, we're on national TV here. So, Rabbi... We know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. And and what uh, Nicodemus is saying is a statement. But Jesus, knowing his heart, shows him in this conversation, Jesus shows him 
the redemptive plan that God has. And in one verse, John chapter 3, verse 16, he encapsulates his redemptive love. In one verse. Now, before we fully explore this verse, because I want to really unpack it, I would like to propose to you three significant points that we can draw from this verse. And those are the greatest act of love, the greatest gift of love, and the greatest promise of love are all contained within this verse. So let's look at the first one, the greatest act of love. And we see that early on in the verse where it says, For God so loved the world. Now, when you just take that little segment of that verse, there's two words that jump out to you immediately, and they need to be defined. The first one is love. The second one is the world. So let's look at love. The word John uses in this text comes from the Greek word agapeo, or agapeo, right? It's a derivative of agape, which I'll get to in just a second. But when we look at the word love in the world in which we live today, it's such an ambiguous term. I hear people say all the time, oh, I love you, and they never even met the person. Or they love their car, they love their truck, or they love this, that, or the other thing. And so it's, 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 it's so universally applied, it loses its depth and its meaning in its certain contextual situations, such as here. And we know that the Bible talks about four different kinds of love. There's the phileo love, which is a brotherly love, for which we get Philadelphia. There's eros, which is a, an erotic love, a sensual love. Then there's storge, which is like a love between a brother and a sister. And then, of course, there's agape, which is a godly love. And I think we need to start with agape to understand agapeo and how it's used in this specific verse. And agape is defined as a divine love that is pure. It is a love of, not of really the emotions or feelings, although they are present, but the will and the choice. This type of love can be defined as a steady intention of the will to another's highest good. It's an ongoing love of benevolence that is willing, not compelled, and always seeks out the best in others. That's very important to understand that from, a God, from God's perspective and, and the agape love is that he's willing and not compelled. God is not compelled to love you. God willfully loves you. He's not forced to love you. It comes right out of his nature to do it. And this love can only come from God because in 1 John 4, 8, it says God is love. Now that goes beyond a mere description or definition, such as God is light, right? 1 John 1, 5. Or God is loving. Those are descriptive terms. They describe who God is or a mere action. But agape love describes the very essence of who God is. A.W. Tozer, in his Attributes of God, defines love in this way. When it says God is love, it means that love is an essential attribute of God's being. It means that in God is the summation of all love, so that all love comes from God. 
And it means that God's love, we might say, conditions all of His other attributes so that God can do nothing except He does it in love. I know that's a lot there, but I hope you you, you got all the main points. And it's important that we grasp this for several reasons. The first reason we need to grasp this and understand this is that God's love is it shows us how He is or who He is and how He interacts with us. How He relates to us. Oops, sorry. It takes God from this impersonal God, this detached God, this aloft God who is not... You know, from an aloft position, he's just not interested. He just sits and monitors. He winds the cosmetic cosmos clock, and he just lets it unwind, and he's not even merely involved. Or it takes him from a, a judging entity, such as in the God of, of the Muslim in Allah, or in the God of law and judgment, such as in, Duja, in Judaism. But that's not who God is. God is the very embodiment of love. And this love is intimate. This love is compassionate. This love is sacrificial. This love is unconditional. It's given to us without merit. In other words, we didn't earn it. We didn't do something to get it. And it's all-encompassing. Now, the second reason why we need to understand this, and it's important, is because love is experiential which means we need to experience it. It's just not an attribute of God to be studied or to be understood or to just be known. It's an emotional connection with our very creator that we can experience. We can feel God's love. And I I know you guys have because I know you. I know your testimony. It is a gift by way of the Holy Spirit, and it can only be possessed by regeneration. You see, phileo, eros, storge, you can all love in those ways without God's love. It doesn't take regeneration to love phileo, to love eros, or to love storge, but it does to love in agape. So agape love is the very essence and embodiment of who God is, and we can experience this love through Him. So then what does then the term used here in John 3.16, which is a verb version of agape, agapeo or agapeo, what does that mean? Well, I looked in one of my Greek dictionaries, and it's under uh, Weist is the, is, is the name of the book, Weist uh, Greek uh, Dictionary. And agape, and he, he defines it this way. Agape, agapeo speaks of a love which is awakened by a sense of value in an object, which causes one to prize it. It springs from an apprehension of the preciousness of an object. The quality of this love is determined by the character of the one who loves and the object being loved. Let's understand this. Let's let's put this in perspective. What this is saying is God's love is awakened by the value He has placed on you and me because He prizes you and me. This love springs from His apprehension to the fact that you and I are precious. And the quality of His love is determined by His character, which is perfect. 
which is pure and true and uncompromising. I think we've all experienced people that are kind of promoting that they love us, but we know they don't. It's a false love. We can discern that. You're not, you don't really love me. You're saying that, but you're not really loving me. God can't do that. When he says he loves, he loves. And he loves all. And it's discernible because of his character that is pure, that is wholesome, that is truth. And what it really means, agapeo, is love in action. Love in action. Now, what we also need to understand from agape and agapeo is that love is in action, is that God so loved the world was a first cause, not a secondary cause, meaning it was in response to something that needed to happen. It was the first cause, and it will always be the first cause. You see, we didn't draw that from God. We didn't ask for that from God. God, first cause means he initially, from the very beginning, loved. And this is important for us to understand, and here's why. The world doesn't love that way. More times than not, the world loves conditionally. And in many cases, it's a secondary cause. It's a cause and effect love, meaning it's in response to something. But that's not how God loves. His love is the first cause. And there's no conditions attached to it. So we see that agape, agape love is a divine love, a perfect love, and agapeo love is the projected love from the first cause. And what then is his object of love? Well, the verse says it. It's the world. Now, what does the world mean? In the English word, you think world, that means everything, right? Right? The whole expanse, right? And in fact, the word does come from the Greek word cosmos, which in our English language means, oh, that's everything, right? But within the particular context of this verse, John is describing the inhabitants of the world. Men, women, the human race, you and I. And why is his love projected towards his creation? Because we were made in the image and likeness of God. We are his precious creation. There is no other created thing in this world that was created in the image and likeness of God. And why were we created to be in the image and likeness of God? So that God could have an intimate relationship with us. It's like, for those that have children, it's like having children. It's that connection. God didn't just create us as part of the world. Okay, we got trees, we got the ocean, we got some squirrels. We need to have some two-legged creatures. No, we were specifically made for a specific purpose. To be enjoyed by God so that we can enjoy God and we can have fellowship with Him and so that we could glorify God, which is really the chief end of man.
Now to Nicodemus, this word world was a challenge to him. Because as a Jew, he would have understood that the Hebrews were God's covenant people. And this word that Jesus is using, a Jew himself, is saying, oh, no, 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 no. It goes far beyond the Hebrews. It's for all. It's for everybody. It's for everybody in the world. There is nobody walking in this world that are not loved by God. No one. And God loves His creation so much that as Paul says in Timothy, He desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of truth. That's God's desire. That's just not a church mission statement. That's God's desire. Why? Because we were lost due to disobedience and sin. You know, it's truly sad when one talks to people who do not either understand God's love or they feel they can't accept it. Have you ever ran across people like that? Maybe at one time in your life you were that person. They've been conditioned by the world in that love is conditional or they've been hurt by someone in the name of love or they never truly felt loved ever. But when you share this verse and you're talking to them about the love of God and you replace their name with the word world, for God so loved the world or so God so loved Tim, God so loved Mike, God so loved Laura, God so loved Jen, it personalizes it. Because that's what it's really saying. God so loves you. And it's the greatest act of love, which is projecting his love to a lost and dying world. And this leads to the greatest gift of love. The greatest gift of love. Now, in this Advent season, we remember the greatest gift the world has ever received, and that is Jesus Christ. He truly was a gift. His birth was for a reason and a purpose, and we find that reason and purpose in the very definition of the word gave. For God so loved the world that he gave. That's a very significant word within the context of this verse. And what it means is this, to give one to someone to care for his interests, to give one to someone to care for his interests. That is a precious statement. That's a precious definition to me because it's the full manifestation of God's love and caring. For he gave freely and willfully without hesitation his son for you and me. And why did he do this? Because you are his interests. To give one, Jesus, to someone, you, to care for his interest. From the very foundation of creation, we have been the interest of God. And when sin separated us and made us enemies of God, he never stopped loving us. He never stopped caring for us. He never stopped calling us unto Him. 
The greatest verse in the Bible, one of my favorite verses in the Bible, that shows the love and the compassion of God is probably not a verse you would ever think of. If I gave you the verse, you'd be like, okay. But when you put it in context, it blows me away. In Genesis chapter 3, after Adam and Eve partook of the fruit, and the sin entered into the world, in Genesis chapter 3, he then begins to identify the results, the, 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 the consequences of that sin. Obviously, he speaks to the serpent, but he also speaks to man and says, you will toil your entire life tilling the soil to grow your food. And there'll be thorns and there'll be thistles and you will work hard by the sweat of your brow. And then for women, you will exceedingly feel pain during childbirth and your husband will have authority over you. But then, in that same chapter, he says this in verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. That really touched me. Especially as a parent. That really touched me. His creation sinned, disobeyed him, caused a curse to come upon this earth and also a gulf between us and him that has to come by way of a redeemer in Jesus Christ. He outlines what the curse was for man, what the curse was for woman. And then he turns around in verse 21 and it says, The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. That is a loving God. That is a compassionate God. God could have just simply had them fashion leaves out of poison ivy and really suffer. He could have let them just walk around nude with no covering at all to protect them from the environment. He could have just said, no, 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 no. You guys, you guys failed the test. You guys sinned. You brought a curse to this world. You figure out how to make leather. You figure out how to clothe yourself. That's not our God. That's not our God. Put this into context. How many times has God fashioned for you garments of skin and leather and clothed you when you were in disobedience? Let me rephrase that. How many times did God's compassion fall upon you even though you were in sin? I could stand up here for hours telling you how many times God, God's compassion, pulled me out of a bad situation when I was an unbeliever. Why? Because he was going to bring me to a place of a Savior. That shows to me the greatest compassion that we'll ever see. Now, whom did he give? He gave his son. Now, for as much as I enjoy the ESV, I think it comes up short. Because in the ESV, as I read this morning, it says his only son. But if you read the King James Version or the New King James Version, you see the word begotten. Begotten has significant theological meaning. And it makes a precious distinction versus just his only son. 
In fact, when you look in the Bible, you'll see that, like for instance, in Luke chapter 3, verse 38, we read, Adam, the son of God. Or we see in Genesis chapter 6, verse 2, it says, and God has many angelic sons. Or in John chapter 1, verse 12, we have all become children of God for those that believe. Right? And so when you look at it, sometimes when you read it and it says his only son, it just kind of doesn't bring out the distinction of what that really means. It means that Jesus is the true and only son of God. You see, Adam was formed from the earth, Eve from a rib, and others were from the procreation of man and woman. Jesus, and only Jesus, was conceived by the Holy Spirit, therefore making him uniquely God's direct son who was fully divine but also fully human. I think this is important because in the world today there are some liberal theologians and there are actually people that I know who confess a belief in Jesus Christ who do not believe in the doctrine of incarnation, which is what we're talking about. They believe Jesus was just a man who had significant influence at the time of his life in the region of Israel that has made a worldly impact. They don't attach a divine element to him. They think he was just one of those fabulous people in, in the world's history. Well, if that's the case, then this verse means nothing. His coming means nothing. His sacrifice on the cross was just another execution by the Roman government. But we know that not to be the case. We know that Jesus is the begotten Son of God. He's fully human, fully divine, came for the purpose of hanging upon the cross to reconcile us, to redeem us, as, as Calvin spoke this morning, to propitiate, to pay for our sins with his shed blood. That's why he gave him up. This is why God sacrificed his son, to redeem that which was lost, to reconcile that which was precious. Now this leads... And that is the greatest gift that we will ever receive. And now this leads to the greatest promise of God's love. The greatest promise of God's love. And this is the latter part of the verse. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. This morning, Kelvin shared the Advent theme of hope along with today's theme of love. And I'm glad that it was shared this morning although I wish we would have had church last week, even though I was in Martin. Because my favorite word in the Bible is hope. It is my favorite word in the Bible. Because when I was saved, a great burden was lifted off of my life. You see, I had hope only in me. I had hope only in the world that it was going to provide for the needs of my family. And from what I could tell and what I can see, it was doing a very poor job. I lived by the thing called fate, not faith. But when I was saved, and I truly understand what hope meant, then I realized for the first time that my life is in the palm of the Creator's hand. That my life is not about faith, it is about faith. 
and that I live under the hand of a sovereign God who watches over me, cares for me, knows every hair on my head, and desires for me to have a life that is blessed. A life that he will never forsake me, he'll never leave me, and he will work out all that is good because I love him. It changed the word hope in my life. It it, it transformed it from a word that was desperate to a word that was of assurance because it was based in the promises of God, which are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. And so what do we receive in this promise of this hope? Eternal life. Eternal life. Now, to fully understand eternal prom- this eternal promise of eternal life, we need to understand that it is conditional. It is conditional. I realize in, in speaking of God's unconditional love in the world, to place the word conditional with salvation seems contradictory. But on the contrary, for God so loved the entire world and whoever believes in him is for all people. But we know that not all people will be saved. For as much as we would like all, as much as we would like to embrace the belief of universalism, which is a doctrine that promotes universal reconciliation and that human, all human beings, all of them, whether they believe or not, will be saved and reconciled to the Father simply by the act of Christ. That's a very loose interpret, that, that's not biblical. That's not biblical. Christ did die for all, but it's conditional on our belief in him. Jesus himself said so in Matthew chapter 7, verse 22, verse 23. And what I mean by Jesus said himself that not all will go into heaven. For he says, for on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, Jesus saying, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. These are people that are proclaiming that they have done great things in the name of Jesus. And yet Jesus said, no, no, you were doing those for you. Those are religious acts. You didn't believe in me. No, those are my words. Those are my words. Salvation, which is freely offered to all, is conditional in that one, in that we must believe In Jesus Christ, whoever believes is what our verse says this morning. Whoever believes. Now, this word belief also needs to be understood. And what it means is to have a faith directed unto, believing or in faith to, give oneself up to. You see, to believe in this context is more than just understanding. Something or taking a position after hearing the facts. That water is 20 feet deep. I can believe that because you measured it. That tree is 60 foot high. Yeah, I can believe that. That looks about 60 feet high. Or a fact that you receive. It's more than that. It's a word of action. It motivates you, it it steers you, it moves you, it draws you, it causes you to embrace what you believe and be transformed by it. 
It's an active definition, not a stagnant one. So many times when I speak to people about God, we'll quickly, they'll tell me, well, I believe in God, but their lives do not reflect that belief. It is if they simply are accepting God or Jesus as a historical fact or religious fact, but it fails to transform their lives. They have a head knowledge, not a heart knowledge. And it's almost like what Paul says in Timothy, having an appearance, having an appearance of godliness, but denying its power. I think the reason for this is because their belief is based on a religious ideal. Why do I say that? Because that's what mine was based on for many years. It wasn't grounded in faith. It was based in an ideal. Their belief is based on what they can see or what they can understand and not on that which they cannot see. And we know what the definition of faith is. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. We live by faith, not by sight. As a result of a belief in an ideal, they can't fully experience what they believe because they lack Faith. Go back to that definition of believe again. To have faith directed unto, believing or in faith to give oneself to. Faith is the catalyst. Faith is the essential element to experience our belief through the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, faith unlocks everything with God. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. Faith unlocks our belief. Faith unlocks everything that we have with God to and include salvation. And when we do this, when we put our faith and our belief in Jesus, we receive the greatest promise of eternal life. The greatest promise of eternal life. In order to understand eternal life, we must not brush over a very important word that's in, the, in this verse. And that is perish. And what that word means in the Greek is to incur the loss of true or eternal life. To be, to be delivered up to eternal misery. We are eternal beings. The philosophical belief of eternal oblivion where they believe that nothing exists after death because consciousness ends when life ends is a lie straight from the pit of hell. It is the position of atheists. It's the position of skeptics. The very gospels themselves show the historical accounts of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and demonstrate without a doubt there is life after death. And those stories in the Gospels, that truth in the Gospel, give authenticity to all the other texts that speak about life after death. You see, we need to understand that hell is a very real place. And it is a place of eternal misery. And many are going there because they don't believe in faith in Jesus Christ. And that's a tragedy. I have loved ones, I have family members, I have close friends 
that do not believe in Jesus Christ. And as a believer in Christ, understanding what God's Word says, my heart weeps for them. Because eternity is forever. It's not just for two weeks, 365 days. It's not a prison sentence of 20 years. It is forever. And when you put that in the context of your mind, in relationship to those that you love, it truly motivates you to continue to share the love of God in their life with the hope that they would believe in faith in Jesus Christ. And God does not desire for them to perish, but his love also allows it to happen. And that is a great mystery. That is a great mystery. But when we do believe, we receive eternal life. Now we all await the day when Father either calls us home or Christ comes in the clouds for his church and we're raised up with him for all of eternity. What a great hope. What a great promise. What a great expectation that we can await for. To be with the Father in his glory, giving him praise and adoration for all eternity where there is no struggling with sin. There is no more sickness. There is no more pain. There is no more injustice. There is no more suffering. There is no more stress. There is no more anxiety. There's no more worries. There's no more doubts. No more dealing with the fallen nature and all of its evils and temptations. As the song says, for mercy me, we can only imagine. And But when we do, what joy it brings to your heart. I can't wait for that day. Paul himself was conflicted. And once you truly understand eternal life, how can you not be? But I think it's important to note that the way John wrote that in John 3.16 doesn't just talk about an eternal life down the road. It's talking about the life that we can have here on this earth as well. They're connected you see, for we gain the inheritance and we gain the citizenship of heaven to the eternal. But while we're still on earth, Jesus himself said, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. We can have an abundant life now on this earth. This is where eternal life begins, here on this earth. Our lives, your lives, have changed significantly when you put your faith and trust and belief in Jesus Christ. Has it not? Has it been for the better? Praise God. Yes, we've had to suffer. Yes, we may have to loss. But the life we live today is one of purpose. It's one of hope. It's one of love. It's one of forgiveness. It's one of blessings. It's one of provision. It, it's one that wakes up in the morning already praying to a God of love who's already showered you with his love. This is what we receive with the greatest promise of his love. Eternal life. And it is this life that we also need to share with others. 
And how can we do that? Because God first loved us, we now can love others. Through the Holy Spirit, we can love anybody, to and include, as Jesus says, our enemies, those that have hurt us, those that have sinned against us. We can love them with a godly love. That truly blows me away because that's not who I was before I believed in Jesus Christ and received His Spirit. Today we celebrated Advent by focusing on God's love. This morning I shared with you from John 3.16 the greatest act of God's love, the greatest gift of God's love, the greatest promise of God's love. I hope by way of this sermon you have a better understanding of this verse as it relates to God's love for you. And it is my hope that it reminds you of what God has done for you in His love and continues to do and to share His love with those whom you love who have yet to believe in His love. Now this morning, we're going to be sharing the Lord's table, as few of us as there are. And what I would like to do, as Calvin and Mike come up, is I would like to just take a few moments Let's just bow our heads. Let us just thank God for His love and all the promises and the gifts that they bring. But then let us also think of that person, that one person, or maybe two, or a family, those people that God has put in your inner circle that He has asked for you to love and to share His love. Is that not also part of the Advent season? Let us take just a few minutes and let's pray.